You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. And his big point for the whole book, and certainly the first eight chapters, is uh, forcing us to ask the question, who is this man Jesus? Who is he? We're witnessing all of these things, these acts of authority, and so he's asking us, and as well as the, uh, the people are asking themselves in the narrative, who is this guy? And so we see this explicitly said in the, the last bit of the last chapter that we didn't really get to last week. Maybe you got to chat about it in your small groups. But let me just read for you the last couple of verses there in chapter 4. You remember there that Jesus and his disciples are out on the sea in a boat and the, the people of Israel as a desert-dwelling people are already terrified of the sea and what comes out of the sea and what happens to you when you're on the sea. And so this makes it all the more scary just being out on the sea. And then in the midst of that context, there comes this great storm. And what happens in chapter 39 is this. He got up, that's Jesus, got up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm right before where there was a great storm now there's a great calm and he said to them why are you afraid do you still have no faith and their response is not to have their faith diminished but rather increase sorry their fear diminished but rather increased and they were terrified mark says And asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. That's the big question of the first half of Mark's book. Who then is this? If all of this stuff that we're reading is true, who then is this? Mark's forcing us into a corner here. He's forcing us to make a decision. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago and using C.S. Lewis's trilemma, that Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord, and we need to make our choice. Mark doesn't frame it specifically in that language, but he's just, he's just forcing us to ask this question, who then is this? One way to get out of asking that question is to dim- dismiss the narrative altogether, is just to say, I'm not going to allow you to force me to make that decision. I just dismiss everything you've said. And people have done that over the years, specifically and particularly since the Enlightenment. People have tried to dismiss the authority of Mark's testimony to begin with. And so people will say, well, this, you know, we we don't need to ask who Jesus is because all of this stuff that's designed to make us ask the question who Jesus is is bunk in the first place. It's not true. It's a myth. And so you end up with a kind of liberal theology which acknowledges Jesus as a good guy with some good things to say, but robs him of all of his authority and his lordship. Again, we go back to C.S. Lewis because he is the man. Uh, And this is what he says. As a professor, an Oxford don, a professor of medieval literature and specifically mythology, here's what he said um, initially in a speech he gave 
He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this, the Gospels. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. And it's true. Before you can just dismiss this as, as, a, as a fairy tale, you need to understand that it reads nothing like a fairy tale. It reads nothing like mythology, together with the fact that we know from uh, history that the uh, source of most of the material that Mark has is Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, so you've got what eyewitness testimony, and the fact that it was written down within a couple of decades of the events happening themselves, much earlier than most of the historical documents we have at our fingertips. And all of that is sort of a cumulative case to say, no, you can't just dismiss this. You have to take it on its own terms. You're going to have to be forced to come to terms with this question. Who is this man? And then Jesus gives you the choice. Jesus is very non-anxious about whether you receive him or reject him. You'll see that right throughout Mark. There are some who come to him, who fall at his feet and, and, and declare him to be Lord and God. And there are others who reject him and conspire to kill him. And it's always been thus. We have the same question before us, not just this morning, but week after week, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, as we look at Mark's gospel. And so what I want to do this morning is just, a pro- just really a lot of reading, to be honest with you. Um, uh, this chapter is so good that it's very difficult for me not to read every verse of it. And actually, the more I think about it, the best thing we could pro- I could probably do is just read God's word to us. It's also convenient for me because it takes less energy than coming up with my own stuff to yell at you about. And so what I want to do this morning is really read every verse. And we're going to just break it up into these three different stories that Mark has put together for us. And and then ask the question, really, about how do we deal with the reality of these things that he's talking about, the reality of demons, of disease, of death? How do we... How do we deal with the reality of those things when we live in a broken world, when we live in a world where not, not, not everything is perfect, certainly, and not all the bad things are taken away from us by a loving Father? And so we'll see where we end up. But I want to start by reading the first 20 verses of this. So you do what you need to do to stay focused, whether you read along the screen or, or along in your, your Bible or whether you just sit and close your eyes uh, whatever you need to do to stay with me, let's, let's see what God says. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 20. They, that's Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. 
When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, that's Jesus, had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? He asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us into the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. Amazing story of Deliverance from demon possession. Not just a demon, but a legion of demons. We don't know how many. We know that a legion was a technical term. It was the largest group of Roman soldiers, largest battalion, 6,000 soldiers. We know that they went into 2,000 pigs. So the, the point is there was lots of them. And they had so overcome this man to, as to possess him. And you read the kinds of things that he's, he's sort of forced to live with day and night, crying out among the tombs, cutting himself with stones, breaking through chains and bonds. This is the reality of demon possession, and, and, and it's a fair bet that in a group this size, there are people in this room who don't, who, who don't believe this story to be true, to be historically accurate, particularly in a majority white western post-enlightenment congregation like ours where we've had these things sort of educated out of us where we know better now the truth is and the view of this church is that demons are real demons exist demons are active in the world demons are the servants of satan and kind of the anti-type of angels in that they are the servants of him, they are the messengers of him, they do his bidding, and really their, their big focus in life, their real main mission is to distort and, and disfigure and destroy God's good order. That's what they're about. That from the beginning God has established good order in creation. This is the basis, by the way, for 
all of our scientific reasoning, for reason itself. The reason we can reason is because the creation itself is orderly. There is a rhythm to it. And though it's been fractured from God's original intention, and though it's yet to be fully restored, it, 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 it remains ordered. It remains, it, it retains some of its original beauty and the, the purpose, the mission of Satan and demons is to distort, distort and to destroy things that are good, things that are orderly. And what they do always leads to chaos and destruction. And so you see that in this man's life, just a chaotic life of, of ongoing destruction. I don't know if, how much experience you've had of this kind of thing. I'm, I know that in a congregation like ours, you take the, the 300 people that come here on a Sunday, the people who have come from countries other than ours are probably going to have more experience of this kind of thing than we have. If you speak to any kind of missionary who has done work in or anyone really who has lived in countries other than ours or countries other than really Western, white, post-enlightenment countries, they see this kind of activity more often. I don't think that's because those other countries are more evil or more under the oppression of Satan. It's simply that we in our country are more blind to the reality of these things. And I think it would be a profound thing if God would just flick on the lights for us right now so that we could see the reality of the spiritual realm around us. It would freak us out. When I was saved at 19 years old, it came in the midst of this very chaotic, tumultuous, physical manifestation of evil like this. And for the next year, I didn't sleep with the light off. And for the next five or six or seven years, I prayed continuously that God wouldn't let me get into any of that stuff ever again. Like, I didn't care if it was demons or angels. I didn't want anything to do with it because it's scary, man. It's like, what's their response when Jesus calms the storm, what's their response when they see him cast demons into pigs? Fear increases. That's part of the reason why we try and shield ourselves from this reality. We call it enlightenment. Really, it's fear. The reality of the cosmic, the reality of the spiritual, it scares us even those who say they don't believe in it. I want to say these forces, these dark forces, our enemy of Satan, our enemy of demons, these enemies are real and they're really active. And in fact, Paul goes as far to say that our struggle in this life is not against the physical it's against the spiritual and so you just do a little audit of yourself if you are spending more time fighting against physical forces whether they be of the flesh or economics or environment or anything else if you're spending more time fighting those battles than you are fighting spiritual battles then you've missed the battle according to Paul you've missed what the battle is really about and you've missed the real substance the sort of constituent parts of the battle. 
It's not earthly, it's spiritual. The good news is, and we'll get back to this in a minute, the good news is Jesus is utterly authoritative. He has complete power over our enemies of Satan and demons. This is why he says to his disciples and to us, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome all of our enemies, and yet we still wage war against them. We'll get to why that is in a few minutes. Let's keep reading and see the next enemy that Jesus confronts. The first one, demons. The second one, disease. Verse 25 to 34. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And be healed from your affliction. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story because of Jesus' tender response to her, but it's a beautiful story because of how pathetic she is. I mean that technically. She's pathetic. She's hopeless. She's got nowhere left to go. She's broke. She spent all her money on doctors. She hasn't got any better. In fact, she's got worse. 12 years of bleeding. Not only the physical ailment, the physical affliction, but in that context, she's not only unwell, she's unclean. Because she's bleeding, she's unclean. She's, she's barred from temple worship. In fact, not only is she not allowed to join with the rest of God's people in worship of him, but she's got to publicly make it known that she's unclean. So 12 years, she's got to constantly go around to people and say, by the way, I'm unclean. That is, don't have anything to do with me. So she has this physical affliction, but in some ways the social affliction might be even worse. This ostracism, this loneliness. And so you can see why she comes to Jesus in such desperation. Twelve years of physical affliction and social ostracism. 
Like I've, I've had a little earache for three weeks and I'm at my wit's end, right? I, I'm, I'm, here's, here's how I'm so much worse than this woman. I'm at my wit's end and yet I'm not as desperate as she is for healing. I haven't really been praying very much about it. I've been getting really frustrated. I've been taking antibiotics. I've been grumpy and a bad husband and father. But I I haven't yet experienced this kind of desperate need for Jesus to heal me. If I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed, she says. And then she has the gall. And it is gall, right? It is cheek. It is temerity to go and to know that you are unclean. To know for 12 years you can't be around anyone else. And then to go and touch someone else. Not just touch someone else, but touch a, a teacher, a rabbi. To make him unclean because of your selfishness. And yet she does it. And rather than make Jesus unclean, she is made whole this is the beautiful powerful authority of Jesus over our enemies of demons and disease and then we come to the third enemy demons, disease and finally our greatest enemy the enemy of death. So this is in two parts. We're going to read in, in verse 22 to 24 and then 35 to 42. Stay with me. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, third person to do that, and begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Skip over. Verse 35 to 42. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, Your your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the little girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. I don't know what that story does to you. It does lots of complex things to me. Uh, I, I, I stopped watching anything 
where little kids are harmed as soon as my daughter was born. Like, Renee and I, one of our favorite shows used to be, and don't laugh, it used to be um, Law and Order, SVU, right? We used to watch that all the time on our little CRT TV. It was about this big. And then India was born, and we had to stop. We got into this show called Luther a little while back. You might know that show. We got a little way, and then we had to stop. We watched, oh, we watched The Hunger Games when it first came out. We left halfway through. Like, it, where little kids are threatened, it's, it's almost overwhelming when you know how much you love your own child. And you can see in this father, and remember, this is first century. This is fathers aren't, you know, there is no father of the year competition. There is no sensitive new age guy. This guy is a man of authority. He lives in a culture where children are pretty much sidelined, minimized, and yet he comes to Jesus with this great burden. He's desperate, desperate like the woman, desperate like the man in the tombs. He's desperate that Jesus would do something about the situation. His daughter is sick. And then in the midst of all of this, as he heals the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, his friends come and say, listen, your daughter's dead. And so we're confronted with the reality and the finality, it seems, of death. If you haven't yet been confronted by the reality of death, then the clock is ticking, my friends. Just this morning, as we gathered together to pray before the service, one of our number heard that her mother had died, like literally this morning, at, like just before the service. We're confronted with the reality of death, and here's, here's what we need to know. We need to try very, very hard right now to resist our innate temptation bred into us in this generation to sweep that reality under the carpet. Every single one of us is programmed to do that, to sweep it under the carpet, right, to take the old people and put them in homes, to believe that if I put this cream on my face, I'll look young forever, right? We do these things over and over again, billionaires investing in cryogenics and ways of delaying the inevitable, but the reality of death, like demons, like disease, is in fact a reality, and it's one we're all subject to. And so you read this story with your eyes open to the reality of death and it gets your attention. Jesus has authority over death. Talitha, kum, little girl, get up. And she gets up. Now, all of this stuff, right? All of this, this triumphant Authority, power, this benevolent, compassionate, loving power over disease and, and demons and, and death itself, all of that is, is beautiful. All of it is profound and powerful. And if you're a Christian, you need to embrace it and believe it and love it and pray for it. We need to pray for more of this. We need to ask God to so pour out his spirit and his people, that people, they're, they're gifted to minister his power and authority over disease and demons and death. And all of that is beautiful and true. And all of it is, if we're honest, 
all of it's a bit confusing. Because I read this gospel and I believe it. I believe in the reality of demons and disease and death. I believe in the absolute authority and power over all of our enemies. And yet when I read the book of my own life, I see, if I'm honest, uh, just a lot of ambiguity. Like sometimes demons are being cast out and sometimes men are cutting themselves in the tombs. And sometimes disease is being healed and cured and sometimes disease is causing death and suffering. And so actually it's not enough for me just to say Jesus has authority over all of these things. Praise Jesus, we're going to stand and sing together. It's not enough. It's not real. The reality, my friends, is that we live today in a, in a now and not yet universe. This is something you need to remember and hold on to, hold on to if you're a Christian. It will save you from jumping into what's called an over-realized eschatology where you expect every demon, disease, and death to be overturned and every, every, every rain cloud to be turned into a rainbow, right? We, it will save you from that error. And it will also save you from despair and depression and from hopeless, monotonous, low expectations. We live in a now and not yet reality. Jesus says in chapter 1, in, in, in the very beginning of this book, repent for the kingdom of God is here. It is among you. The kingdom has come, but it's not yet fully arrived. That's what we need to know. In Jesus' first coming, he inaugurated his kingdom, his kingdom which reorders a chaotic universe, brings back to bear God's good creative, beautiful, original intention for his creation. It arrives in his first coming, but it is consummated. It is perfected. It is fully restored in his second coming. And between those two comings, we live in a now and not yet universe. We live in some level of ambiguity. So I love what what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? He's just outlined in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to know anything about the resurrection, if you want to know anything about Jesus' resurrection and what it means for your resurrection and what it's going to mean for you when Jesus returns, for your body, for your soul, for your eternal life, go to 1 Corinthians 15. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it's triumphant, it's victorious. But sometimes we miss a very important point that he makes towards the end of this chapter. He says in verse 54 to 57, when this corruptible, that is, when this body that can, be, can suffer from demonic oppression or disease or death, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, that is, when we receive a resurrection body that will not suffer from demons, disease, or death, 
when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, that is when when Jesus comes again and he gives us our resurrection body, then, then, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. That's what we're holding out for. Yes, we come to Jesus in this life, de- life desperate for deliverance from demons. Yes, desperate to be healed from disease. Yes, desperate for death itself to be done away with. But we understand that we live in a now and not yet. We hope ultimately for the not yet, for that which is yet to come, for Jesus' return, for his consuming all things and making all things right. That's what we hope for. And I'm just about done, but I thought I could just read something for you. And I know I've done a lot of reading today. And, but I, I just, as I was thinking about this this past week, I'm, for me, I can't, I can't, I can't talk about this and it not bring to bear a whole lot of. Uh, whole lot of stuff. Part of the reason I believe all that I've been saying is because it makes so much sense of my experience. And we shouldn't be led by our experience. We need to be led by God's authoritative word. But my experience chimes so much with God's word. And with this whole area of of demons, yes. Disease, yes. Death, yes. I wrote something a couple of years ago about my, my experience of this kind of cognitive dissonance between believing, yes, Jesus' authoritative over all these things and my experience of these things kind of sucks. And um, I, I wrote something about it. I'll just, I'll just read you a, just a little bit of this, um, this blog post I wrote. Uh, this is kind of my reflection on dealing with the reality of my mum dying when I was a kid and the reality of God being good. And I'll just, I'll just, I'll just um, cut out a little bit to read. This is a bit embarrassing to read this in front of you, so if you want to close your eyes, you just make me feel better, okay? It says, I see her, a picture of my mother flanked by her family. This is a, a portrait that hangs in my, my dad's house, a a family portrait. It's her, all right, but it's not her, too. Not really. The portrait has been arranged to capture the family in full before it's too late. Something to call to mind the beauty of what was, an image to outlive the fragility of memory. She's sick. Cancer is advancing through her body like a militant host taking no prisoners, defiling the corporeal like so many mercenaries pillaging a once pacific realm. She's sick and she's tired. Her deep brown eyes, once vibrant, are now fixed in a faraway gaze. Her face, once exuberant and often arranged to form her characteristic grin, 
is now drawn, weary. Her hair, once impossibly thick, has been robbed by a final attempt at drug-induced redemption. The wig in its place only mocks the memory of what was. She smiles, but it's the smile of a woman in deep, iniquitable pain. The picture undoes me, and it helps me see clearly. All this rhetorical supposition, this theological explanation, this philosophical abstraction about how God is good and sovereign over all these things, it serves a purpose. But for me, its purpose is not to convince or elucidate or justify or compel. Its purpose is to protect, to protect me, to protect the boy just turned eight from going back into that room, that room of vacancy, that room of grief, that room that held the body but released the soul of my dead mother. I fight through the protective cognitive mesh and re-enter that room and I remember, I remember seeing her there but knowing she was gone. I remember kissing her cheek and receiving nothing in return. For the first time in my life, an expression of affection went utterly unanswered, perfectly unreciprocated. God's book speaks. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Where? Seriously, where? It's here, damn it. It's here. It's in this room. It's in this woman's body. It's in this boy's heart. It takes up the space vacated by love and warmth and affection and comfort. It's here. It's now. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's now. We live in a now and not yet reality. And this applies to demons and to disease and to death. Jesus has authority over them, but his authority has not yet been made complete. That is, those things have not yet been utterly destroyed, but they will be. They will be. This is our great hope as Christians. This is what eternal life means. It means a resurrected, restored, redeemed, perfected life with God forever. And so in the meantime, the now and not yet looks like this. In the now and not yet, demons, disease, and death are active enemies. We need to know our enemy. They are active enemies. Number two, they are used by God to achieve his purposes. Absolutely. Demons, disease, death used by God to achieve his good and perfect purposes. And number three, Demons, disease, and death will all cease to exist in the not yet reality that we hope for. 
So here's how this plays out, and I'm done now. Here's how this plays out right now. We're going to stand, we're going to sing God's praises. Why? Because he commands the winds and the waves and they obey. Because he has authority over demons, over disease and death. Because he is God and man, that's why we worship him. And during that time of worship, acknowledging his authority and power and majesty and glory and deity, while we do that, we invite you to come and pray. Pray with someone if you feel like demons are oppressing you in any way. If God has allowed you to see reality and saved you from the fabrication of this life, to see what's really going on and to see who your enemy is, if you know that and you're, and you're seeking to be delivered from that, then you need to come and pray to that end. If you are suffering any kind of disease in the body, whether it's an irritating ear infection or it's cancer in your bones, you need to come and you need to pray that you would be delivered from it, from the same Jesus who healed the woman after 12 years of bleeding. And if you're coming to the reality of death, whether it be your imminent death, because it is imminent, or the reality of your mother's death, just departed, or or you want to pray that someone else's imminent death would be delayed, or to the end that all those who don't yet know Jesus would be rescued from eternal death, which is the wages of sin. For any of those reasons, we ask you to come and pray. This is the now and not yet reality that we live in.